In 2017, legendary guitarist Steve Howe was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the band Yes. A Londoner, Steve was in the center of the counterculture universe during the 1960s, calling for peace, dressing in flare pants with star and tinsel face painting, tripping on acid, and from time to time, randomly bumping into and playing alongside other rock royalty like Jimi Hendrix. In January of 1970, Steve Howe auditioned with the band Yes and officially became a member. At the time, Yes had recorded two albums featuring John Anderson, Chris Squire, Tony Kay, Bill Bruford, and guitarist Peter Banks. In 1971, Steve Howe and the band released Yes's third album, The Yes Album, which took the band to new heights. Steve and the band continued putting together classic songs like Close to the Edge, Starship Trooper, Clap, Yours is No Disgrace, Roundabout, Long Distance Runaround, Heart of the Sunrise, Awaken, On the Silent Wings of Freedom, and Beyond. Way beyond. Musicians endorse love, we endorse peace, we endorse joyfulness, but you have to find it yourself, first of all, before you can expect the world to become this wonderful place. You've got to work on yourself. The rest is history. Yes is the most influential prog band ever, filled stadiums globally, and has sold more than 30 million albums worldwide. Thank you, Steve, for agreeing to speak with me about such a wide range of topics, including tech's impact on creating music, Earth's ecosystem, our interconnectivity, renewable energy, overcoming adversity, influencing the Beatles, and of course, the Gates of Delirium. Steve Howe, it is truly an honor to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us on Some Future Day. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for inviting me up. Yeah, nice to meet you. Where are you? Where in the world are you today? Well, I'm really resident in London, but I'm in the West Country, which is a beautiful part of England called Devon. So up in the North Devon, it's uh, it's more rural. And, um, you know, I'm hanging out here. I've got a recording studio and uh, things to do. <laughs> Steve, is Some that, um, just curious, like, is the location in Devon one of the first places that you recorded with Yes and then later went on to actually purchase the property? Is that the same spot? We rehearsed in the house, yeah. And, you know, 10 years later, I, I did uh, did buy it. So it was really perfect for Yes and, and continues to be perfect for for, I, for myself. Being a Londoner, I, I was used to built up areas and, you know, and then I came here and suddenly there was the countryside. So it, it's great fun. It sounds like such an interesting place from what I read. It's, it's pretty old, huh? Yeah, it's about... Well, nobody really knows, but I mean, it's at least two or three hundred years old. Yeah, interesting. And then you described it as having—I—I I, I don't think you use these exact words, but certain nooks and crannies really caught my attention. Yeah, in the, some in of the it's quite low. It makes you wonder were, were people shorter before? I don't know. But there's a lot of there's quite a lot of low beams, but also the the roof is is thatch, so that's a very traditional style in Norfolk and in Devon and lots of areas of the UK we have uh, thatched, thatched uh, properties and they're quite uh, they're quite beautiful so it's nice so as you um 
after you purchased this home, if I understand correctly, you would bring your family out from London and not only just use it to rehearse, but actually use it for vacations as well. Well, I guess semi get out of the city type of vacations. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you start off with an idea and it evolves into something else. Initially, yeah, we just thought, oh, this is a, you know, family retreat kind of place, but it didn't work out like that. It, it continued being partly that, but, but, but about four years later, it started to become what it is now, which is, you know, guitars and recording equipment and things like that, because it was a bit cramped in London doing that. So when we had the space, we realized that this was a, and actually it's a, you know, it's a business concern, uh, you know, although it's not public studio, you know, that a lot of recordings um, are made here and that's the way, you know, we've been working out um, what's the viability or the sustainability of 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 having a, a a property really mainly only if it's if, if it's a studio in the context of business you know but uh, so we've even got solar panels and you know we've started to think long term or oh, we always have really thought fairly long term but uh, that's interesting that you have um, the solar panels um, built over the, there not on the not on the thatch <laughs> next the to yeah, I see somewhere I away, see. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was actually in a home recently in California that had the it sounds like a similar setup with um solar panels. Like for me, I don't understand why the world um has created a political football out of the issue of climate change. Like just going back to the 60s and and your roots a little bit where um the idea of preserving mother earth and just taking care of what we want was so important. Doesn't it make sense to embrace renewable technology if it's in front of us and, and to, um, you know, use solar panels? I mean, apparently we need to use every blooming thing we've got to, 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 you know, get a grip on the situation. And maybe there should be more, you know, uh, turbines in the sea, wind turbines, turbines in the sea, everything we can do. I mean, you know, there is that part when you drive in LA to Palm Springs where they got 30 yeah. miles of it's incredible. turbines. You, you kind of wonder, mm, but, you know, it could be out at Seymour, um, but it could be that we're going to make leaps forward soon, you know, with battery technology is going to get smaller. You know, the kind of thing that will help and maybe will help us. But actually, at the same time, we've got so much that isn't helping us. And it's increasingly not helping us, you know, is the, the, the dependency on actually, you know, make, you know, getting oil and, you know, getting crude oil. You know, there's so many things we're doing that if we keep doing them the same, uh, the effects that other people are trying to implement, you know, with aware global awareness uh, are going to fail. So it's unlikely, as you started out by saying, this. I think you were hinting at the fact that this really should be a world issue. You know, there should be no divide politically. You know, Correct. But how can we break down the walls that divide people, you know? And if we could, the first thing we'd go is, okay, let's sort out sustaining the planet. You know, well, I've been vegetarian, I don't want to preach, but I've been vegetarian for over 50 years and and i did my bit you know in that way that was a choice i could make and but there again i've not been part of the slaughter <laughs> right. or the, the fishing of fish you know or anything not that one would ever expect there would be no dependency on that but similar to oil if you see what i mean if you put the two boats together meat meat and you know the generation all the things that we go in to generate more 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 meat you know, and then all the things we do, 
So there's a conflict that that should should can only be aligned if countries really got together. So the, the barriers are, are very difficult. And, uh, you know, I'm not here to say I know the answer. It's interesting when I see interviews with people and the, the, the interviewer says, well, what's the answer? And I feel like, like, listen, if we knew, you wouldn't have to ask. Somebody that I'm very interested in is a German polymath named Alexander von Humboldt. And I actually pulled a quote that I thought you'd find interesting when it, you know, he kind of talks about this interconnectivity that you're highlighting. And he says, insight into universal nature provides an intellectual delight and sense of freedom that no blows of fate and no evil can destroy. So even while we have like this global landscape where people are kicking around something that seems so obvious to you and me, I feel like over time, perhaps this interconnected connectivity of the ecosystem and of people will prevail. Well, let me just jump in on something you just said, first of all, but yes, of course it should, but but I mean, you know, Alexander Humboldt, I mean, I read his you know, biography and I was fascinated by this guy who said 200 years ago, you know, that we're destroying the planet. You know, when he went to South America yeah. and saw what they were doing 200 years ago. And I've mentioned that about about half the concerts Yes did on tour. You know, and I've tried to get that idea across that somebody, this guy Humboldt, 200 years ago. So the fact that we... We've been told so often, you know, we've been reminding ourselves maybe for the last 20 years that, oh, the planet's in. And actually, as that's happened, of course, we've got to that pivot point. We're actually turning back to to making things better. It's getting harder as we, we struggle to do that. And yet we're still generating the things that are a problem. And I doubt whether war can generate anything more than things we don't want, not only in the sheer miserable physicality of the awful atrocity, but also the damage to structures like 9-11. I mean, 9-11 pollution after that was incredible of phones, of buildings and, you know, asbestos and all this stuff. So, I mean, you know, we are always damn well erupting with stuff we like a little bit like the volcano. You know, it's so there's true, no it's end true. to it. It's almost like as if we don't look, we don't like to go too far into our history as humankind, but yet we just keep on repeating these lousy things over and over. I read in your book that Hieronymus Bosch, or um, I think you pronounce it Bosch, is, um, you know, I saw that you you highlighted the Garden of Earthly Delights, which was created, uh, I think, at the end of the 1400s, 1490 to 1510. And um, it exists for anybody that wants to know in one of my favorite museums at the Prado. But why, like, if you look at that painting, it seems like the um, the middle panel of the triptych and then the, the third panel of the triptych kind of highlights, like, where we're going. Like you just said, like, we're going back into war again. We're destroying the environment again. We're hurting ourselves and shredding relationships again. And that was something that he painted back in the 1400s. And here we are in, you know, right? That's, a, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's a great observation because, you know, Humboldt's only 
200 years ago, but but that this is, you know, it's an awful long time ago to think that we've, um, I don't know what it is. I mean, what you could say is, is that humans are really dumb, you know. We're really, really dumb, seriously dumb, to get so many things wrong and, and not get ducks lined up for security and safety. But, I mean, that is human nature. It's it's a big problem. In fact, maybe at some point in the evolution, we'll actually come face-to-face -face with the fact that we're the problem, not everybody else. Or it's not the human condition. Thing. I often say this about um, artificial intelligence now. People are afraid of new technology. And my comment is, we, you, you the person, you're the problem. If you have nuclear weapons or nuclear power and it's in the hands of a bad person, the nuclear weapon isn't going to cause the damage. It's the people that cause the damage. And I think, you know, to your point, we see this over and over again. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe we've got to pick up the conversation that that no matter how bad things look, uh, people, uh, not only musicians, but artists of other kinds, and generally everybody has got to keep positive. You know, one's got to have an idea that, yeah, it sounds really bad, but, you know, we can get through that. Uh, we can get through this. But, you know, unfortunately, we, we we might not be tackling the big fish first, you know. And one of my sort of recent, you know, gripes was when I discovered that uh, that pollution, 20% of it is only coming from crude oil in boats, you know. I mean, 20%. Wow. Now, okay, so you can't solve that problem, like, overnight. But the economics are, are saying, sell, sell, sell. <laughs> Keep making that oil. Keep selling. So there's this drive to keep selling this stuff. And it is actually the only way to keep the boats going at the moment. But, you know, we've got to have more vision. And, and Musk has had shown, Elon Musk has shown a lot of vision. He's thought of ideas that everybody went, oh, that's silly. And then he's made it work. So we need lots of people who've got, you know, and there are, and the people are out there in the technical technological field. I mean, you know, high tech are developing very lots of lots of very hopeful uh, ideas. I think that, you know, the Elon Musk reference is really incredible because what a big vision for him to say, I'm going to create SpaceX to essentially preserve mankind, save mankind from itself to get us onto Mars because he's predicting essentially that we're going to destroy Earth, which is insane, right? Well, there's so much in what you've just said. Uh, just to cut halfway, I mean, the fact that he 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 has that um, overriding ambition, you know, that's that's helped create this incredible you know system of rockets and all that. I mean, bravo, you know, well done. But I mean, you know, I've always questioned the concept. Well, how are we if it's difficult living here, <laughs> just how difficult is it living there? And how do we get there? And how do we take stuff and all that? 
Correct. The, 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 let him have that dream, uh, but let us at the same time and him make use of the, you know, what he's devised in the way of <laughs> moving stuff around very rapidly, which is the other side of the coin, isn't it? I mean, if you can keep moving stuff around really quickly, you know, in space, uh, that's pretty amazing. That's a, that's a new, you know, it's gone from like, you know, Uber to like space. Yeah. Space, yeah, it's really uh, well. Space travel, as I say, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think I want to live here. I think uh, this you want to keep your feet on the ground? I think you're going to keep me. I'm going to stay here. I think Bowie <laughs> didn't Bowie kind of um send that message out with was it Space Oddity where he sent that yes. message out, like mm. you know, get me back on planet Earth, right? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, people sometimes just come back from a holiday and say, thank God I'm back here. Yes. <laughs> or, I get or, it. That's a, that's a sort of deep but, but trivial uh, comment as well. But, like, you've been preaching this stuff. Like, you've been, um, you know, let's go back. Like, uh, we spoke about Von Humboldt. Like, one of his quotes inspired me to reach out to you. It said, people often say that I'm curious about too many things at once. But can you really forbid a man from harboring a desire to know and embrace everything that surrounds him? And I really, in looking at your life, I, I know that people see you, of course, as arguably the best guitarist in history, truly. But you've lived such a rich life. It's fascinating, really, um, at your if people really dig into your interests and your belief system. If we go back to like London in the 60s, for example, um, which I think you mentioned it's it was the center of the universe in the 60s. But simple concept that we're just bouncing off around right now is the concept of peace. Um, you were in the 60s, in the late 60s, at the forefront of this movement. You were a hippie. I don't yeah. think Yes fans really look at Steve Howe as being, <laughs> you know, that that prototypical hippie. But why, like, like if you were, if I'm correct in saying this, like if we were arguing for peace back then, why yeah. does it seem so... Um, out of our grasp. Why can't we hold on to peace? Well, I mean, 67 was great. And when I did go to audition for Yes, uh, Bill, who, Bill Bruford, who I love dearly, whispered to the guys, I think he's a bit of a hippie. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I have been a hippie. Uh, yeah, but the ideals that we had were so rich and so, you know, um, supported by, you know, the Beatles and everybody. It was a It was a period of thought that meant that surely the answer to everything is peace, you know, and love. And it sure is. And it sure is. And I still believe that greatly. And much like when my wife and I got, Jan, got into macrobiotics, there was another guy, Mishikushi, who was saying, world peace through world food. So, you know, and then there's Rudolf Steiner and, you know, there's people along the way who've all touched an idea to say, you know, that there's something a lot better we can do than throw mud at each other. We could, you know, engage and, uh, and find what love is. And I think that the only, um, well, one of the reasons I'm still, you know, interested, not only talking to you, but playing the guitar and doing all this stuff, is that I, there were points in my life where I made a few decisions for myself, which, you know, as I mentioned, veggie, and then I got into this meditation idea, which I never thought, you know, would, would interest me. But suddenly I went ding, and it did. And um, the the closer, the longer I've done these things, uh, the more I don't profess to be Zen, you know, to sounding to sound really cool, man. He said, but actually, what the Zen ideas are are, are very close to, you know, 
the hippies and Buddhism. And so there was a great connection. There was almost like a thread around the world of hippiness and of spirituality. And, you know, there was, um, you know, the Maharisha and all that. So basically that there was an offering. You know, the world was offered a route called love and peace and, and joy and happiness and music and art and, you know, uh, great flavors. But, 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 you know, I can tell you by 1968, you know, the year after, things got really gray, you know, they got really dark. And, and I think the hippies, like, went underground. And then we came out with prog prog music you know which was which was another way of expressing psychedelia because psychedelia was like wild and just go crazy never thought of doing this let's do it but in in the 70s yes and all the other prog bands they we all put the music together that was much more intricate much more varied much more influenced by outside sources rather than you know chuck berry and and you know the beatles have moved everything on colossally and, and i hope that prog bands also continued that moving forward, spreading the same message that the hippies were, you know, that underneath all yes music and our last album, Mirror to the Skies, no exception. You know, musicians endorse love. You know, we endorse peace. We endorse, you know, uh, joyfulness. And uh, But, you know, you have to find it yourself, first of all, before, before you can expect the world to become this wonderful place. You've got to work on yourself. You've got to balance yourself. You've got to find out what, you know, what you can feed yourself, if you like, not only in food, but but in the, the things that you entertain yourself with to make a, a, a better world for, for yourself and then share that with the ones you love. So it, you, you asked me a big question, why did it fail? I don't think it exactly failed. I think it got derailed and, and it's still trying to come back and, it no doubt will be in the messages of, of uh, artists, you know, forevermore. So I'm curious, Steve, like when you talk about, when you mentioned the, uh, I think in 68, you said it became a little gray. Is that because, do you feel like the drug culture, like I didn't realize that you, it, it seems from my, my readings that like you really partaked in LSD and um, like, do you feel that drug culture enhanced the peace movement and creativity, or do you feel like it actually moved towards like this darkness? Because I know like you came out on the other side in 1972 with being a vegan, um, no animal products, but you also haven't done any uh, pharmaceutical. I understand from what I'm reading, no pharmaceuticals too. So I wonder like in your mind, do you think that the drug culture from the late sixties um, moved us into a grayer period, and then you came out of it in the 70s? I can't say clear cut, but but what I picked up from what you asked me about was that that really uh, there was a changeover of drug culture to pharmaceuticals. And when I have said I, I, I use pharmaceuticals as little as humanly possible, you know, yeah. and that's very little compared to, you know, half of America being on painkillers, you know. Yes. So so I, I'm thriving in in the fact that I've let my body, you know, go naturally, much like I've gone let my hair go naturally. Just everything's got to go natural. You, you look beautiful, There's no Steve. point in fighting it. You look beautiful. But yeah, but I, I, I've not, it's, it's a, Interesting point you raise. I don't. I don't quite know how to tackle it because I think that uh, the grayness I mentioned was a, a return to the realities of a less supported, less 
mainstream version of what hippies were doing. You know, if that had gone into a sort of mainstream version, we didn't have to, you know, wear stars on your forehead. But, you know, it was greatly adopted. You know, it might have clung on wider. So, like I said, it went underground. And I think the people who wanted to continue making artistic music, you know, had to find their own way. God, you know, I'm very, I'd like to be able to find something more to say about that because it, it is a very, like, pinpointing something that um, most probably there isn't really an answer to. You know? Yeah, because, you know, it seems like today, like, our leaders, um, whether it's cultural or political, like, they're not, like, it doesn't seem like peace, like, they care about peace as much as maybe you did and your peers in the 60s. Um, you know, I, I think your music, obviously, like, pushes that concept through this this interconnectivity this harmony of the world um where we're just a part of it but going back into like the late 60s like before you even got to yes um just to touch on on your band tomorrow i think that was like really an important moment in 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 time people like tend to like put you into that psychedelic posturing but i wonder from your perspective like do you think tomorrow was even a psychedelic band well okay you might not know, but only last year I released a new version of the Tomorrow album, which is a reimagined version, although we didn't add anything really, but we, we, we balanced it, we sorted it out, and we threw out some tracks that weren't psychedelic. And I, my goal was to make the record like the record it should have been back in 1967, which was in tune, in time, and basically uh, psychedelic. And I think I've done it, you know, and the album's called Permanent Dream. And it's it's a reimagined version, a bit like what Giles Martin did with Revolver. He didn't really, you know, they didn't stick a new keyboard on it. But, but basically I did my own version of that with, and that was using technology which had really only come out in the last few years where you can take a mono tape and then change the balance assuming you're not trying to change guitar and keyboard balance, but you can change drum, you can change all the balance, you, you could. But we tried not to do that. We just treated it and improved areas, and in particular the song Revolution. So basically, I think that now tomorrow is, I, I can say it is, but if you judge it on the first recording, it was a wishy-washy affair, and it, it didn't have the focus or the power of, you know, records by the Doors or the Birds or, you know, the Beatles. It, it, it was, White Bicycle was commanding, and, um, and now this perpetual uh, permanent dream is available. I, 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 I think I can say, yeah, it is a psychedelic record. We were a psychedelic band, but I'd like to straighten out what you said about how much. I mean, I was a very light drug user, and I always was. And uh, I, so basically, when people took anything, I usually took half, and I said, oh, I'm just going to try half of that. But basically, I didn't get caught in it, you know, like a lot of people did. So I took it occasionally went quite mad and crazy and had hysterical moments uh, and a few like scary ones but basically i didn't get an addiction to it it was like whoa don't, don't touch that too often so that's how it left me you know I, I had a fantasy i might when i'm you know ancient kind of you know do that again but i would never because basically i like where i am very much i'm happy with where i am and who i am i i understand i really do um 
When when you mentioned um, tomorrow's um, song Revolution, yeah, um, was the original recording in Abbey Road? Yeah, the album was recorded in Abbey Road. Yeah, oh, yeah, what, were, uh, with Jeff that? Emmerich as well. You know, engineering. So. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So were they? Were, they, were you? Were the Beatles recording uh, Sergeant Pepper at the same time that you were recording? Yeah, we were quite used to seeing the Beatles. Um, you know, they were very sweet. Well, not. I mean, the people who were like. Like really, just approached you like just like normal people was Paul and Ringo. You know, they were like to see you somewhere. They just say hi, or they even poke their head in the door, you know, and say hello once or twice, which was a buzz. But at the time, the perspective of the Beatles was, wow, this, this is a top band. But you know, I mean, over the, over the course of the next few years, of course, after Sergeant Pepper, which was the signature 1967 record, you know, I mean, everything on that thing was was. Uh, was amazing, you know, the the whole contrast. But look at the wonderful contrast on it too, you know, with George's sitars and, you know, the, the songs and the, the imagination again uh, to bring joy and, and happiness. It's it's really still a great album. And I think Beatles, most probably, could never be surpassed as the most inventive and, you know, important band of that, that whole era, you know. That's really interesting that you say that. I have... I have a lot of love for the Beatles. In fact, my son's name is Jude Sargent, Jude Sargent Beckman, for a lot of different reasons. There are double meanings in there too, so I thought you'd appreciate that. But pretty cool. I heard that um, the Beatles were inspired, um, when you talk about revolution, the Beatles were actually inspired by you and your music and um, you know, from, from that from that session, yeah? It, well, it would, it's been said that. I think there might even be some evidence. I can't quite piece it together, but yeah. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> what can I say? I, I'd be flattered to think that. Uh, but I think everybody was influenced by everybody else, you know. Um, you couldn't avoid it. You know, the influences were strong and powerful, you know, when Crosby, Stills and Nash came out. Everybody went, vocal, vocal, vocals can be like this, you know, again. And of course, we had the Beach Boys and the Birds and were another fantastic. So America had some great bands, but I mean, I think the Beatles stopped the show. But there but were other Ron, bands. Did Ronnie Wood, I mean, the Stones were pretty cool also. Didn't Ronnie Wood contribute to um, your album, to, to Tomorrow as well? Did I read that? Um, with, there's some tracks with Keith West that Ronnie played on. He played the bass on some tracks that are on. Uh, they might, one of the, I don't think they're on Keith West's album more than they're on either. I don't think they're on Mothballs. But Keith and I did a few few. Uh, I did guitar for Keith on a few songs, and they basically uh, had Ainsley Dunbar on drums, and uh, one of them had a string bass player. But but I I can't remember quite. I think to be honest. Keith went off and did some tracks where Ronnie Wood played, and then, but I did run into Ronnie, and then I played guitar on them. So. What was um, the UFO Club? Like, I'm kind of stuck in, like, London hippie era. Like, was the UFO Club 
like the center of the the London hippie scene back it was, then. It was really it was the the kind of one of the, one of the earliest and most probably the longest running. You know, there were competitors that were totally different. You know, like the Seville Theatre on Seville Theatre on a Sunday evening. That was that was another center. And there was the place called Middle Earth, and then there was Chalk Farm, which uh, I think they called that Middle Earth once as well. But there was a place in Covent Garden. <laughs> Where I remember playing a few times, but no, if you played the UFO, you you knew you were, you were in the centre. You know, it was very much the the, the London centre, and it was really, really seriously crazy. And when you walked in there, you didn't know what was going to happen. You know, and uh, you know because there'd never really been a place where you know the projection was used in that way and the music was all this wild free running stuff improvisation and i used to roam off for 10 minutes <laughs> that's amazing so like jimmy hendrix jumped on stage with you once when you guys were playing there well that is true yeah um what used to happen in these prolonged uh breaks they were they're initially bass drums and guitar and then gradually things would fall away like junior would put down his bass and start yeah. dancing and so um which <laughs> I say that I think, are you serious, Steve? Yes, and basically, and that's when Jimmy Hendrix picked up the bass. So he he plowed into it, and we just roared away. You know, I have no idea if anybody ever recorded it, but it's unlikely. But it was a great moment, yeah. And we saw him in Blazes. In fact, we'd met him before that. At, that's uh, when you Blazes. were living there. Uh, we were all we were the resident band on a Thursday, and he came in on a Thursday and played yeah. for the first time, I think, in London. And um, so we were the, or maybe came on a Wednesday, and we were we were there. We hanged out in Blazy; it was the place to be. And uh, you know, he he just joined the table, said, "I hear you're the resident band." You know, we kind of went, yeah. So, you met uh, some really interesting people, Steve. Like everybody, obviously, puts um puts you rightfully so as like the face of yes and these other amazing bands like asia and gtr etc but um you know like what was Jimi hendrix like was he was he a uh did he come across as an, a kind person was he inspirational somehow in our fleeting meetings I, I i didn't couldn't have drawn any of those conclusions but he was always relaxed he was smiling he was a fun guy, you know, he, there was no heaviness that I could spot. In fact, a lot of other musicians came across pretty heavy, but Jimmy didn't. He was uh, light and breezy, you know, pretty, pretty happy, happy-go-lucky. Yeah. What about Sid Barrett? Like, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the world, the universe has painted this image of Sid Barrett being like this genius that went crazy. Um, and I know that you knew Sid Barrett, at least I've read that you knew him as well, but what was he like? I didn't know Sid. I, I, I knew Sid less than I knew, um, um, another guitarist who did, did become a victim of LSD, but I mean, it wasn't, it's not for me to judge what these people are like. All I know is, you know, I know what Pink Floyd have said about him and of course they love him dearly and yeah, they wish he hadn't gone, you know, off the edge a bit. Because there was a talent, and you can see it all over the first album, you know, the, fantastic, you know. But um, it didn't get reined in by himself, you know. Sid didn't rein himself back. So, um, you know, as I mentioned in my book, you know, there was a night when I thought I was going to play with Pink Floyd, and I was rather excited. But when I got there, Pink Sid had showed up at the very last minute. I mean, I was about to go on stage with them. So, um, obviously, it, that was you know, in a way, a good thing, but in a way, I would have liked that opportunity. 
to have done that. But I didn't know anything I was going to play, but it didn't matter. Then I would have just been in tune with whatever they played. But it was a wild idea, just bringing me out of tomorrow and standing in. But that was because there was a beautiful guy called Steve O'Rourke who managed both of the bands, Floyd and Tomorrow. And uh, well, he was one of the partners of Tony Howard and uh, Steve O'Rourke. And they were great. I'm sure they put me forward. So Steve was that the it. Brian Morrison agency? Yeah, Is that... they were the people who okay. did the day-to-day work, you know, the real work. Um, Brian was, the real was work. like an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, he was like the entrepreneur. He, he poured the champagne. He, there you go. He played <laughs> the champagne, but he, but he got you going. I mean... At, yeah. at one point, though, it became difficult for you, right? Like, like um, before you got into Yes, right? Before you joined the band, Yes, yeah, there was like a a a rough part there oh, in your yeah. career. Pretty, yeah, yeah. I mean, after Tomorrow, Keith and I didn't really know what to do. He was going to go solo. I helped him a bit, and I did some recordings. And on a Saturday is one of them, and that's a lovely, lovely song. I love that. So. Um, Basically, after that, yeah, then I met this band called Bodas, who became Bodas. I mean, that was a kind of living nightmare for about a, about a year and a half, just because it was so difficult. The music was really quite strong, uh, you know, and we had a lovely singer called Clive Curtis, uh, Clive Skinner, um, Maldoon, and Dave Curtis was was the bass player, the other singer. So it, it, it had something, but, we, you know... I don't, I, I, you know, you just can't say. Uh, like it was a follow-up, you know, the um, further dark days, you know, after psychedelia. I was happy, you know. I, I, I was living in North London, you know. I had my favorite guitar, my one seven five, you know, and uh, and then before the the seventies ended, I had my first son with my first wife, Pat, called Dylan. So, uh, you know, um, I, in a way, I was quite happy. But, uh, and you do find contentment at odd times, you know. And uh, Steve, did you name your son Dylan after yeah. Bob Dylan? Yeah, and also like Dylan Thomas, you know, because that was sure. a Christian name where Dylan had been used. And uh, and then and then, if I read correctly, Dylan was born on the same day as your song "Clap." That's right, "Clap." I wrote "Clap" that night. Uh, Wow, you know, as as uh, around the time he was being born, yeah, and uh, it's a hard thing to follow. But I love writing tunes. I've written another twenty, thirty other guitar solos. But but clap really did start it off. I mean, in a way, you need something. It's like a snooker game. You got to go to a game. You got to get a a frame on the board. You, you so clap came out from my love of Chet Atkins, but also the excitement of having a son. So. So it's again, it's kind of interesting because it's the fabric of the universe that came together with the life of your son, the life of your music. Maybe there were difficult times with that band, but you know, in your core, I imagine your soul is a you're an artist, and that will always be with you. So even when you hit tough times, were you just always confident that your music would just continue forward? Well, I mean, I don't know, always gone. Yeah, but always hopeful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought I could, you know, I, I'd done some of my grounding, you know, in the first 10 years and therefore, you know, give me a shot. <laughs> and I always, I look, I could look back at guitarists, even when I got a shot with Yes, who'd missed the shot that they'd been given. You know, I'd seen guitarists who floundered when they were successful. You know, and that was a habit in the 60s uh, of, uh, well, if it wasn't the guitarist, it was somebody else. But, you know, I would notice guitarists who'd, uh, like David Liss, you know, he had the nice and they were a great band, you know. 
but you know, like Sid, you know, and a few others, that they, they, they got over into uh, um, outside of themselves instead of focusing on themselves. One last question that I would mm-hmm. have for you is this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think like when you mentioned clap, um, it's such a pure song. And then we see technology drive through so much of Yes's music um, from Tormato to Relayer. Relayer is like really my favorite, um, Close to the Edge. I'm curious in your from your perspective, as we go through this time period where we're going to have AI generated music and, and more and more of um, computers creating music, do you feel that we're going to lose something as um, let's say uh, machine generated music replaces individuals? There's no doubt we will. Of course we will. But if you look back over the stepping stones of technology in, in musical recording, each step, I mean, I couldn't get, like the fax machine, I mean, technology, other stuff, you couldn't wait to get rid of that damn machine, you know, and get something else. And I think that that those kind of leaps happen. But when you look back, you suddenly realize that some of them had great benefits. And this was the dilemma with CDs, you know. Oh, where's the bass end? It doesn't quite feel the same. And, you know, records, you know, you do feel it in, in the way that the bass end is, is transported through your speakers. It's just different. It's analog. So there will always be a slight price to pay. I mean, I like to think that we're moving two steps ahead and one back all the time. So they will make these jumps. And who would have known, you know, the difference the internet would make to our lives and, and how it's changed so many, many things, like us talking, you know, in, in a, and, and with a quality of sound that isn't like a, a phone, you know, like it used to be, you know, even if it was going through a satellite. We are good. It's incredible. Well, Steve, look, can I ask you one more quick yeah. question? Yes or no question? Mm-hmm. So do you think that um, Gates of Delirium is a sad song? Well, I think it's a song about war, you know, about fighting, is about battling, you know. Uh, but I think the, the sort of redemption of it is soon. So I think if you look at the overall curve, yeah, you've got this like ferocious stuff and, and some of it's this and that. And then suddenly you're in soon land. So I think soon is a, is a soothing uh, re- resolution and, and gives one tremendous hope. It's a very emotional and touching, touching song, as opposed to the other stuff kind of shouting. <laughs> it's more shouting. Steve, you've given us a ton of time. All of my guests, it's a tradition on the show. The show is called Some Future Day. It was inspired by James Joyce. It's a reference to James Joyce. And what I do is, I start the sentence and then my guest finishes it. Would you mind if I did this with you, please? Well, try me. (laughs) Okay. So let's keep it on theme. Some future day, the world will find peace if. We carry on believing, but also get active. Beautiful. Steve Howe, I cannot thank you enough. It is literally an honor meeting you today. Um, Thanks for joining me today. It really means the It's been my pleasure Uh, too. Nice, Mark. Thanks a lot. 
I know your time is very important, so thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insights surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day, and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day.